Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The draft reading series celebrates the diverse and talented writing in Lighthouse's workshops that hovers around a given theme. The draft happens once per eight-week session, every winter, spring, late summer, and fall. Writers and workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The theme of the draft 17.0 was The Past is Never Dead, It Isn't Even Past, and featured poet Colleen Zubik, short story writer Patrick Kelly, memoirist Leah Woodall, and short story writer Levi Jansen. Elid Sperry and other writers from Lighthouse's Young Writers Program kicked off the draft 17.0 with a collaborative reading-dancing performance with dancers from Ballet Nouveau, Colorado. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. Really? That's, I, are there no Irish people in this audience? There you go. Come on. That's right. That's, what I, that's the spirit. That's the Irish spirit. He yelled something I couldn't understand. That's exactly how it should go. Uh, welcome to the draft 17.0. Not bad, huh? I think we might make this a tradition. What do you think? Should we should do some more? Yeah. It's one of my most exciting nights of the year. Um, I mean, not just because of St. Patrick's Day, but um, because I really love the draft. I love the draft. It's, I, I always find it so inspiring. Who here doesn't know what the draft is about? Raise hands. Okay. <clears throat> so... So the draft is um, instructors in our workshops, our amazing instructors. Raise your hand if you're an instructor. Woo! Awesome instructors. I've said it before. I'll say it again. We have some of the most amazing instructors in the country. We rival any MFA program out there. And if you don't know what an MFA program is, you should go to AWP with 12,000 other writers and see what that's like. It's very exciting. But anyways, what was, I, what was I talking about originally? I forgot. The draft. Oh, yes. Thank you. I'm, I'm part Irish, so I'm celebrating. Um, our instructors choose some excellent writing in the workshops, which is always a difficult task, um, to highlight the quality and the talent that is inherent in our workshops. And you're going to see um, some amazing writers tonight. So it's my pleasure to introduce our um, first draft or sergeant. I don't know. Draft. Well, I want to introduce the draftee, Aldrin. Yeah. So uh, Meg Nix is our wonderful, amazing youth program director. She is um, not only an exceptionally talented writer, she is someone who is ice cube cool under pressure. And she's amazing. Um, she took her six-month-old um, daughter to AWP. So 11,000 and a half. Um, I think she learned a lot there, don't you think? She, she got, yeah, she... She toured the booze. She, she got some places to submit her work. She's going she's to be good. Yeah, let me find her. So please give it up for Meg Nix. Oh, wait, wait, wait. oh, you know what? Oh, my goodness. Wait, wait. There's, there's another thing I should probably take care of really quickly. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, dancers. Um, I, have some, I have some stuff here. You see, I had these notes written out and everything, and I left them at home. These flowers aren't for me. Um, <laughs> There, there is a, a member of the Lighthouse family who um, is going to be 
I'm not going to cry. I swear to God, I'm a guy. Guys, don't cry. Um, who's going to be leaving us or who has left us? I know. But, uh, you know, it's not say goodbye. It's see you later. Um, Jenny Taylor uh, Whitehorn uh, was our program assistant, our wonderful, amazing program assistant. If you ever um, called Lighthouse in the past two years, you probably got her sunny disposition over the phone. Um, I, I can't say how much we're going to miss her. She's just an amazing person. She's incredibly talented. She's one of the most positive and cheerful and funniest people I have ever met. Um, and we're really going to miss her. Um, and if you've ever gotten an email from her, you will know that the exclamation point <laughs> will never be the same after Jenny Taylor. And that's the kind of person she is. She is the exclamation point. So, Jenny, I have, I have, a, I have some flowers and a card for you. And a thing. And a thing. I have a thing. Well, I... A, I <laughs> a, a, well, why don't... Why do, yeah, you want to come up and give her... Yeah. Oh, wait, wait. Oh, man. I'm going to go lie down now. Thank you very much. So, um, big nicks. Um, I'm so excited to introduce to you these lovely young people over here. I was joking with them that people didn't know that fairies were coming tonight. This little, <laughs> lovely little gathering of, writer, of dancers and writers. Um, so what you'll see tonight is a sliver of our collaboration with Ballet Nouveau. Um, it's surprisingly hard to explain, but each writer in our teen council that meets weekly here at Lighthouse, they're all high schoolers, um, each writer meets with a choreographer, a young choreographer at BNC. The choreographer takes the writer's work and they choreograph a piece with a group of dancers that they assign to that piece. Um, it's phenomenal work to see. Um, the, the performance is in May. Um, it's May 4th at 4.30 and 7.30. So tonight you'll just see one of them and hopefully that will entice you to come to the actual performance. Um, the pair that you'll see tonight are um, Ailey and Sarah. Can you guys raise your hands? Yay. Um, <laughs> and um, Ailey has been at Lighthouse for a number of years. She has just a quiet grace and a real power in her writing, which you will hear tonight. Um, just a little bit of um, an intro to her piece. She wrote it as a three-piece narrative. Um, our collaboration this year is, it's called In the Along, um, after a Gwendolyn Brooks poem, but it's, the theme this year is Colorado history. So each of the writers chose an era, a person, um, or a place in Colorado history, and Ailey chose Molly Brown, um, which could be sort of cliche, but she decided to go to her dancer and ask her about an unsinkable woman in her dancer's family. And... Um, so Sarah's great-grandmother is one of the narratives. Um, she was an immigrant. Her story is probably the most haunting. Um, and then Ailey's own grandmother is one of the narratives. Um, her story is of a loss of hearing and how she survived that 
um, more of the internal conflict, but no less terrifying. And then um, the last piece is obviously Molly Brown's story, Recreated. Um, And so there's three writers who will be representing those three narratives, and then the three dancers. Um, What else should I say? The dancers are incredible. I don't even have adjectives for them. They dance like professionals, as you will see. Um, So that's it. Um, Please come on May 4th and... Um, actually, I'm going to let um, Sarah and Ailey say just a little bit about their piece. Hi, so I just wanted to introduce the two other girls that will be reading with me today. It's Maureen and Zoe, and they're both in Teen Council, too. So, yeah. Um, and I wanted to introduce who I brought with me today. I brought um, Momo, Kailea, and Jacqueline, and um, they're all students at my studio. And we've been working on this collaboration since November, and this is actually our opening performance. We haven't shown anyone yet, so I really hope you enjoy and get to see the whole show in May. It began slowly, a good radio starting to slip. Sometimes the stations would fade in and out, and she would realize she had missed a word or two, a sentence here and there. She didn't want to believe it, but as the world around her fell into silence, unwanted thoughts slithered into her mind. You're going deaf. You can't hear. You are broken, damaged, fragmented, Shattered. She stepped outside and gasped, a sound that vibrated in her chest and turned to ice. She could see them in the greenish water of the lake. Her father was holding her siblings' heads under, and golden hair fogged around his head, hands. Bubbles trickled out of the children's mouths. Their eyes were closed. His head was underwater as well, but his eyes were open. The whites were stained with pink, and as he stared at her, they closed. The bubbles coming from their mouths stopped. A crash jolted her onto the floor. Her silken nightgown was torn as she fell, her body smacking wood. She lay still as the ship groaned and shifted. Panicked voices began outside her room, and they rumbled through her heart. Goosebumps prickled her skin as she moved to the door. A man yelled at her, Get your life jacket, the ship is sinking. She froze in the doorway, the words unbelievable. The ship was supposed to be unsinkable. She didn't move until the ship shifted again, sending her falling into her room. As the voices grew fearful, she numbly prepared, pulling on her clothes, folding money into her pocket, grabbing a blanket from the bed. Then she opened the door to face the rush of people. Her heartbeat pounded through her brain silently. Everything was silent now. The tick of clocks counting away seconds of her life, the voices of her relatives around her. And although they waved their hands and their faces displayed numerous emotions, she never knew what they said. She still smiled, but it was a broken mass smile, listening to one side. She was a ship that had a gaping hole in the side, 
broken boards and splinters falling into the ocean. Water was rushing into her ship and down her face. Her heart was waterlogged and sinking, and there was nothing she could do. Years passed, but the memories never faded. She knew she had to escape. When the chance came, she ran. She boarded a ship bound for America, staying below deck for the many days aboard. When she slept, it was a piece ripped to shreds by the nightmares. Swirling golden hair turned to ash and fell, burning her skin. Bubbles popped, releasing terrified, dying screams. Hands pushed at her head, shoving it under black waters. Much as she tried, she could not wake up. Later, when she was awake, she huddled on her bed, surrounded by fear. Of that lake, of the new land ahead, and of now, a place that was composed of nightmares and salty air. Someone had shoved her into a departing lifeboat. She fell and hit the wooden bottom, then stood and looked out at the dark waters. Ghosts, tall and wavering, with jagged, icy edges, stood out of the water. The other ghosts were in the sounds. Sobs and screams echoed in the liquid ice air, in the breath that hissed in and out of her lips, and in her heartbeat, pounding in her ears. I am alive. I am alive. I am alive. You can still hear and speak. Her eyes, portholes to her soul, filled with hope as she looked up at the doctor painstakingly reading his lips. He told her about getting a hearing aid and about learning sign language. Later, she began to sign, her hands moving patiently, steadily while she counted down the days until the surgery that would grant her some hearing again. Her boat wasn't sinking anymore. Her holes were being repaired. She could endure. She could withstand. She could triumph with a new future. She stepped off the ship to a new world. In front of her, a huge land was visible, stretching into the distance. So far, her eyes ached with the strain of looking. The buildings were brick, sitting beside bare land. This place was magic. A cloud of new scents settled over her. Smoke, perfume, food. The sounds found her as well. She could hear voices blurring together, talking, shouting, laughing. Their owners were visible as well. They added color to this world. Browns and grays, reds and blues, all moving among the streets. A bird, a golden splash against the blue sky, flew above her. It was her hopes, her dreams, with her future lying below it. She smiled as it passed. As she grew accustomed to this busy, pleasant place, it began to wash away the memories stained into the fabric of her mind. The world was alive to her again. She was everlasting. She could begin again. She could change her life. She watched the ship slide into the ocean, one end reaching up to the sky before the water swallowed it. The others in her boat were shaking from cold air in their bones, but she began talking, using words as fire, weaving warmth around the boat and in their souls. They rowed for hours until they were pulled onto another ship, this one whole, golden lights showing the way. She stepped aboard and slowed as the warmth hit her. She and the whole lifeboat had survived. She could weather the toughest iceberg. She was unsinkable. She was strong. 
wonderful. Thank you so much. That's so much better than me doing an Irish jig. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. Uh, okay, next up we have, I believe he might be Irish. His name is Patrick Kelly. Um, he will be introduced by our longtime faculty member, Jennifer Itell, um, who uh, I probably say this every time, right? That I actually met Jennifer um, uh, in graduate school before I met Andrea, my wife. So um, I don't know why that's important. That's really not important. <laughs> Just stop. Can you take that out of that podcast? That's useless. That's waste time. That's filler. Anyways. Um, but I knew she was a bad, uh, really good writer <laughs> uh, when I met her. She was, she was just really incredibly talented. She is really incredibly talented. And I do know this. Another random fact, that once she received a letter from her landlord that was, a, that was addressed, Dear Maggot. Please welcome Jennifer Itell. <laughs> Thanks. This is... I almost have to tiptoe for this. <laughs> Andrew told me it was actually Parasite, not Maggot, yeah. but you know, that's okay. <laughs> I never know what Mike's going to say now. I feel like I have to recover. <laughs> <laughs> I get that a lot. <laughs> I also feel like I'm wishing um, I had thought to ask Patrick to bring some backup dancers. And um, <laughs> I think you two in the second row there are his friends, right? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, Anyway, um, I love um, when I read the first sentence of something and I feel like um, I have the reaction of, um, wow, I'm in, I'm along for the ride, wherever this is going, I'm in. Um, And I think that takes a lot of talent to be able to pull that off with just a sentence versus um, an opening paragraph or an opening page or opening chapter. Um, I just fairly recently met Patrick when he... um, took the intermediate short story writing workshop, and when he submitted um, uh, his story for review, which is the story you'll hear a selection of tonight, um, I had that reaction to his first sentence. I thought, wow, this is enthralling. Um, I want to know where the heck this is going, um, and it was a really fun ride. And um, and he's a super talented guy, and he's writing up a storm. He's been um, taking um, lighthouse workshops for about two years, I'm told. He, um, he writes short stories. He's working on a novel. He, um, he's a songwriter, and he plays guitar. And he's a joke writer and aspires um, to do stand-up comedy. And, um, and he sometimes writes for the Lighthouse uh, Top Secret blog. <laughs> Um, and he's just a fantastic addition to um, the Lighthouse community, and I think you're going to, um, I hope you enjoy his reading and uh, get a chance to meet him afterwards if you haven't already. Enjoy Patrick's reading. Welcome. All right. Thanks, Jenny. Uh, thanks to the dancers. That was incredible. And now I'm going to read a story full of. Drugs and swearing. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect transition. All right, this is the first, uh, I don't know, few pages of this story. And thanks for coming. Do I want to take this out? No, it's fine. I I can use hand gestures this way, which might be important. We took the mushrooms, and yeah, it was a lot of mushrooms, and sure, we expected it to get weird. 
But what we didn't expect was that instead of tripping, we'd start joyriding helplessly through time, kidnapped by ghosts of the past. If I were forced to accuse our otherwise flawless gang of having one tiny weakness, I'd probably have to mention our pride, our dirtbag hubris. It was a problem, the way we assumed we could drift through life on our charm and our humor and our good looks, always with beers in hand, and take whatever drugs we wanted and be as weird as we wanted and never talk about anything serious. And that there weren't going to be any consequences, like all of a sudden time travel, for example. (laughs) We were totally confident in our assumption that we wouldn't at any given moment start hurtling backward through time. Where did we pick up this sense of security, this firm conviction that the best is all still yet to come? I could also mention our silence. I mean the silence between all the jokes and the noise, all the things we chose to ignore. The shit we didn't know how to talk about, so we just didn't. It was pretty clear there toward the end. The reason we didn't talk was complicated. More complicated than our bullshit unspoken claim to social immortality. More complicated than any of us could understand. More complicated than time travel, even. And harder to explain than time travel, even. It was winter and we were restless, so me and my roommate Sherman and Sherman's girlfriend Marie and our friend Ed all took mushrooms one night. The night time turned itself around. We had no real reason to do it. It was an impulse, a whim. We tended to take a whim very seriously. We took the mushrooms because it was cold out and we were bored and, you know, we had mushrooms, which historically for us had been reason enough. (laughs) And it was always a great time. Lose our minds, trip out, rocket through space, listen to a lot of jazz. Ponder the most existential and unanswerable questions, chicken and egg type questions, questions that start with why and how and what the fuck is the point of. (laughs) We'd laugh and cry and sit silent like crazy people in dark disheveled rooms, that sort of thing. I called it team building, gang building, (laughs) band building. A lot of times we'd go on some really great walks in the park, quests and adventures, and usually at some point in the long voyage of an evening, Marie would say something totally thoughtless and brilliant, wise and innocent. Something maybe like, man, do y'all ever think about how us here right now, we're like everything we have? (laughs) And if we were on a walk in the park and she said something like that, my insides would spark and lava would flow through the tributaries of the branches of my brains. And I'd smile into my peacoat lapels and step lighter on the moving concrete pathway, feeling all profound and Kerouacian and like everything mattered. On the night in question, we crunched down a bag of dry stems and caps and made grossed-out faces, and everything went pretty normal at first. And by normal, I mean, you know, mushroom normal, which is a different kind of normal. (laughs) We listened to music. We wandered around looking for patterns on the walls. We tried to play music in the basement, but I couldn't do it. I froze up. My hands and my brain wouldn't parlay. My guitar was incomprehensible to me. Some menacing tool robbed from a fallen UFO. I remember the feeling... What am I doing? I mean, what am I actually doing? Am I real or? I dropped the guitar, but Sherman and Ed kept at it. They were channeling something. The music spilling out from their one guitar and their cheap drum kit was feral and ancient, and they played better than they knew how to play. It spooked me. I bailed on the basement jam, and for a while I mostly laid on the floor in the living room with Marie staring at the ceiling. We watched the imitation chandelier, the way its spindly shadow on the ceiling jumped in the light of the candle burning on the table. The drugs pulled the music apart like dethreading fibers of a thick rope, each instrument a human voice. And when the heat came on, the house breathed in and out, and the ceiling swirled itself into perfect patterns and washed and swayed like a shallow surf. You know, mushroom normal. (laughs) 
In time's last ever moment, everything was going fine. Everything was going normal. Everything was going whatever. We were each in our own outer space. Sherman and Ed had wandered back up from the basement, and we were on our backs, losing our minds, listening to Thelonious Monk. And then suddenly it all kind of stopped, everything except us. In that moment of silence, still nothing, I thought, these mushrooms are incredible. (laughs) I thought, these mushrooms have got me in their clutches. But then the music came back, and right away I knew something wasn't right, and everyone sat up at the same time and looked around. I saw panic. (laughs) What is, I said, and stopped. It didn't feel right in the room. The record was playing backward. The song we'd been listening to started warbling and spilling apart in reverse. This is, uh, this is fucking weird, Ed said in a tense whisper. Uh, yeah, Sherman grunted. Marie's face was frozen, a collage of fear. Even weirder was we looked at each other and we saw our edges shiver and blur, and then we were looking at ourselves in the room, copies of ourselves, like we'd each doubled. We jumped off our couches and our dirty rugs and stood huddled together and watched something that looked identical to Sherman and something that looked identical to Ed raise up eerily from the floor. The thing that looked like Sherman wore the same v-neck tee, the same beard, the same manic half-blink stare. The Ed thing had the paint-stained jeans, the wild, dirty hair, the love-everything grin. They walked the same, but in reverse, and there was something morbid about that, something inhuman. I mean, obviously. (laughs) It kept us quiet. They were all jerky limbs and garbled laughs and flickering smiles, and they crept backward down to the basement. The crash cymbal fizzed into a loud hiss, and the two of them finished playing a song, and then played that song, and then started playing that song, and then played some others. While they were down there, a Xerox copy Marie and a Xerox copy me stayed on their backs on the floor in the living room, muttering deep thoughts to each other in reverse, retracting everything they said, stingy with words, greedy for them, sucking whole sentences back in. Holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, Ed said. Wow, Sherman said, wow. (laughs) Marie said, I am out of my fucking mind. I said, does that mean we all are? For a while, we sat there shivering and gesturing and arguing about what exactly was going on. Once we agreed the consensus was none of us had any fucking clue, we spent some time just kind of following our ghosts around the house, watching them, studying their moves. None of us really said anything. What could we say? After a while, who knows how long, we were forced to agree. They were doing everything we'd done before we took the mushrooms, but chronologically backward. The idea started to sink in, and I couldn't deal with it. I think I'm going to puke, I said to the others. And I climbed the stairs and went into my dark bedroom to try to calm down. But my ghost stumbled in too soon and took off his clothes and fell into bed squinting in the morning light. And I sat there and watched him sleep. The sun disappeared and I couldn't take my eyes off him. My whole body was seized up tight. His life as a ghost was new and he was already haunting me. And then he was stirring again and then he was up. I watched him stumble out of bed in the dark and noodle pointlessly on my guitar, his guitar... And then he sat and smoked and struggled into his clothes. He was getting un-undressed, I realized. He might be out of the house soon. He and his gang of ghosts might be getting ready to dive backward into the hyperspace American nighttime. I thought, this is a fever dream. I thought, this is a nightmare. I thought, we gotta follow them. I thought, I better get down there. In the dining room without a table, Sherman and Marie sat next to each other on rickety wooden chairs and Ed sat cross-legged on a guitar amp. 
Marie had her long, thin fingers spread unbelieving over her mouth. They sat in silence watching their ghosts wander around the house, turning on the TV, playing video games, saying things, turning off the TV. He's getting up, I said as I walked into the room. I stood for a minute with my arms crossed and watched the spastic scene our ghosts were making in the adjacent living room. We must have been drunk, I said, whatever night this is. Yeah, Sherman muttered absently, unable to take his eyes off the ghost gang. Who's getting up? I'm getting up, up there, I said. I mean, he's getting up, like going to bed, I said. Uh, Ed said. (laughs) I squeezed my eyes shut, frustrated. What I mean is my guy's getting ready to come downstairs. (laughs) Jesus Christ, Marie said, putting her head between her knees. I cannot fucking handle this shit, she said. I wanted to get her out of there. I wanted to get us all out of there. Wake up, I kept screaming in my head. This is fucked. Wake up, wake up. What if we recorded this shit? Ed shouted out of nowhere, jumping up. (laughs) Holy fuck, I'm a genius. Before anyone could say anything to confirm or deny this, he pounded up the stairs. Sherman looked at me, charged smile, like that fucking guy. I looked at him sideways and half closed my eyes and cocked my head like, would that work? He frowned and shrugged and raised his eyebrows like, maybe. (laughs) Then we heard the toilet upstairs unflush and footsteps coming down in an alien dance step rhythm. And my ghost walked in with his back to the room and a little goodnight wave to the gang. He picked up a Wii controller. (laughs) Oh my God, Marie moaned. I'm getting kind of used to him already, Sherman said. He got up from his chair and charged across the room and swiped at his ghost, whose light body bent like a hologram and curled away and recurled like smoke when Sherman's hand passed through. You are out of your goddamn mind, Marie said to him. Sherman's ghost flailed the Wii controller around, and behind him, Marie's ghost was sitting in a chair with her elbows on her knees, staring up at Sherman's ghost, her lips occasionally cracking into a smile. I couldn't watch her do that for too long. Something went tight in my chest. I dropped my eyes and bent to the table and tried to pick up the other Wii controller. My hand passed through it and the table and the floor or where the floor should have been. My fingers swept silently through nothing but cool air. I stood up straight. Well, guys, uh, by the way, I said, I actually have no idea how we're all like standing and walking around right now. (laughs) Ed stomped down the stairs two at a time and burst back into the room out of breath, eyes wild, hair wild. Guys, he said, I can't fucking touch anything. I was trying to grab my tape recorder and... Yeah, Sherman interrupted, staring at his ghost's hands on the Wii controller. We just figured that out. I walked over to Ed and put my hands on his shoulders. Try to touch the floor, I said to him quietly. (laughs) He gave me a look and bent over and swept his fingers through nothing, passed them right under his feet, tapped the soles of his shoes then looked back up at us, already in the middle of one of his uproarious laughs. Holy shit, dudes! The three of us bent or crouched and started swinging our hands around underneath us, under our feet, which felt like they were standing on solid ground the whole time. We laughed, and I went down on one knee and felt the hardwood floor underneath my knee, but was was able to wrap my hand around my kneecap. And then in a low voice, Marie said, Guys. And we all stood up and turned back to our flickering copies. In eerily sped-up movements, Ed's ghost was untying his vans, and Sherman's ghost was doing a little victory dance, and then on the screen, his ball flew out of the hole across a long blue pixelated sky and jerked to an abrupt stop next to his club at the top of the course, a hole-in-one. Then my ghost turned the TV off, and the group started shuffling backward out of the room and shrugging their coats on. Marie stared at her ghost, trembling. 
I think we're leaving, she said, her eyes glued to her own pale copy, who danced around the room and then went over and took a record off the turntable and turned the stereo off. Oh, Jesus, Marie said. Holy fuck. She shook her head and looked at Sherman with wild eyes. This is creeping me out so bad. Sherman laughed, a mad man glint in his eye. We gotta go with him. We were coming from the bar, Ed said. You think if we follow ourselves to the bar, we'll get to see ourselves barfing beer into pint glasses or something? Only one way to find out, Sherman said, grinning like crazy. So we're really going to do this, I said. Fuck yeah, we're really going to do this, Ed said, slapping me on the back. The ghosts were piling backward out the front door. Sherman shrugged. What else can we do? Oh, God, Marie moaned. We stood up and looked at each other nervously and went out after them. To be continued. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Figure we can own the stage. Thank you, Patrick. That was amazing. Wow. Good stuff. Oh, man, that brought me back. Um, you had me at dirtbag hubris. That was awesome. That was my favorite. That and your shoes. Good, nice shoes. I like those. Um, okay, so next up we have um, Richard Frude, who's going to be introducing Leah Woodall. And I just have to say, so um, not only is Richard um, multi-degreed, would you say? M.A., M.F.A., Ph.D., soon to be M.D., Headache for letter for his letterhead designer. Um, we, we know we have a good instructor, not because he has multiple degrees, uh, but when we, we hear people talking about, oh, I took a class with Richard. I loved it. Richard was amazing. Are you going to take a class with Richard? I think I'm going to sign up for another class with Richard. Richard, 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 Richard. And so then we know we have a good instructor. People get obsessed. And so um, Richard is like that. Wouldn't you say? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, 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 for sure. Yes. He's, he's a gateway drug to just to try and, yeah, exactly. Um, I, we also know that I, I can also tell that Richard's an excellent instructor because he picked Leah Woodall to read. Um, I've had Leah in several different kinds of workshops, poetry and memoir, and she's a fantastic writer. So you're in for a real treat. So please give it up for first Richard Frude. Thank you. Thanks, Mike, for that introduction, to my introduction. You know, I actually don't have any of those degrees. I drew all the certificates myself. (laughs) And I fooled you. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I chose uh, Leo Woodall to uh, read at the draft tonight. So I don't have the uh, wit to uh, give an uh, off-the-cuff introduction, so I wrote it down, and I'm going to read it to you. Leah Woodall is a fearless writer. I mean this not only in respect to the literary values of form, content, and getting up in front of a room full of people. I mean that she invites change into her thinking. In the most metaphorical sense, she prays for earthquakes. Of the three consecutive sections of advanced memoir I've taught here at Lighthouse, Leah has been in every one. This has given me the opportunity to witness real-time her experiments with form, collage, that daunting turn toward the question. It has been my privilege. 
Her piece, The Scream, that she will read tonight, is testament to this bravery. Edmund Jabez writes, what is the story of the book? Becoming aware of a scream. So I ask of Leah's work, what is the story of a scream? Becoming aware of oneself, both behind and ahead of oneself, reconciling oneself with loss, the singular that was once part of a plural, the totality of expression until one day, perhaps, expression might be exhausted. I recently learned that a scream propagates by causing the air to vibrate parallel to the direction in which it is screamed. As air becomes canvas and canvas becomes concrete, those vibrations are harder and harder to come by. But the scream does not die. It is absorbed by what is around it, lives on in its surroundings, our walls, our lives, our language. Leah's work is this persistence. Measured silence where there was once vibration. Syntax where there was once only emotion. Please welcome Leah Woodall. Wow. Um, I think we talk about brevity in class sometimes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> Okay, I take the draft seriously. That's why I, I dragged out this when I was youth director. I had a youth group, and this was our, our, uh, our armor at youth group events. And um, so um, Uncle Sam's on the back, except it was our penguin um, mascot who was Uncle Sam. And my favorite button, this is all, these are all peace buttons. My favorite button is the button that says, wearing buttons is not enough. The scream, one. There is a scream buried in bone, calcifying for 22 years. I feel it bubbling, shifting the plates of my skeleton, mountains breaching my epidermis. I expect bumps on my skin, explosions less friendly than my freckles. I will explode. But there is only dryness of aging and living on the plains east of real mountains, high desert. You were low desert 22 years ago, a valley in the shadow of the superstitions, deep valley without a phoenix. Two, in New York, I put my foot down. We will go to MoMA. We will see the scream in all its pastel nicety, hanging on a freshly painted wall, fifth floor. Behind bulletproof glass, I tell my husband, plexi, he cracks. <laughs> I have seen it before, once, a different iteration. I remember it dark, menacing, on the wall in another quiet museum, soundless in the loudest way. I think that was before, not after, the scream inside. We were just husband and wife, not yet the children, who were fresh to this world when you left it. Therefore, before the scream... Perhaps a preparation. Three. They found my sister in an IHOP. She looked up from her coffee. She'd come from a fellowship meeting, her third that day. Had called into work that morning, too. They were afraid she'd scream when they told her 
We'll tell you after you get in the car. I won't go with you unless you tell me. She was frozen in her chair, determined to make them dispense their news under the fluorescent lights against the clanking of stainless steel. Your brother's dead. The patrons looked up from their coffees as the restaurant shook. Four. I told my therapist, the good therapist, after the bad therapist, I told her that I needed to hear glass breaking. Inside my head, I could already hear it, muffled and small, how my nails sounded when they were being trimmed. It was not enough. I had a plan. I would take my glass bottles to the recycling center and hurl them one at a time into the metal bin, listen for the explosions. I was proud of my idea. I could have been a therapist. But every week when I met with her at six in the morning when she squeezed me in and she asked if I'd gone to the center with my bottles, I had to tell her that I hadn't. Shattering glass will not release the scream. Five. I yelled at my husband, though, often. I yelled at him for bouncing a check and then another. I yelled at him when he said, I never have trouble starting the car. And when he didn't read my mind after all the hints I'd left. I yelled at him after I'd quit my job a second time, certain that this time he told me his transfer had finally been approved and we were moving to Colorado. I even yelled at him for being so careless as to rush in the middle of the night to comfort our baby boy and breaking his toe against the door jam on the way. One night after dinner, I yelled at my husband for nothing at all and walked out the front door. I needed to see the new French thriller about a young woman kidnapped and buried alive in a bucolic countryside where no one will hear her scream. Six. I saw a lot of movies the spring of 1991. I rewatched The Godfather and thought about family loyalty. I rented The Other about a charming but evil twin brother. I went to see The Silence of the Lambs and heard the screams of slaughter and abandonment. I rented Ordinary People about the stronger sibling surviving but wanting to die. That spring, each movie of the week had a character who committed suicide in some melodramatic manner, or so it seemed. My life was badly made for TV, B-rated, but I couldn't change the channel. Seven. I met a friend at the National Gallery in D.C. I ordered mashed potatoes at the cafeteria, and we sat near the waterfall wall, the way they served the gravy made the mound of potatoes look like a castle surrounded by a moat. I took a couple bites, careful not to spill the dark goo. I told my friend how my twin brother shot himself in the heart in his condo in Arizona. Then I broke the moat and watched the gravy bleed onto the white plate. I told my friend that I was mad at the grocery clerk who rung up the wrong price and the photo clerk who didn't process the duplicates I'd carefully requested then argued with me that I must not have checked the box on the envelope. How exponentially important it was 
to me that they got it right, suffering as I was. Eight. At the viewing, my best friend from college held my hand, let me rest my head against her. Her shoulder was tense. She said, I am so angry with Larry. What a selfish thing to do. I retrieved my hand and sat up straight on the wooden bench. I felt betrayed. I felt betrayed. I felt betrayed. I got up and left. I could not sit beside her anger. Nine. That first year, I read Theo's letters to Vincent and saw the starry night in New York at MoMA, fifth floor. I stood in front of it holding my baby boy, thinking how you'd just taken dozens of pictures of him in his crib and on his blanket, surrounded by playfulness. And of my toddling daughter, too, how you'd taught her to say, don't touch the cactus on our walk to the park, how you'd captured her laughter in the twirl of her hem, like the swirls in Van Gogh's sky but then you'd retreated into his night palette. Ten. We went to Disney World with our two children. It was eight or nine years after their uncle shot himself. We were seated far from the stage for the new Indiana Jones show. Someone would be chosen to come up on stage based on how loudly, how convincingly they screamed. On the count of three... I opened my mouth with hundreds of kids. I was a dried-up corpse in rags, buried alive. Thousands of sand flies spewed from my oval cleft. I convinced the lady in front of me. She flinched, then turned suddenly, eclipsing my scream. What's wrong with you? She didn't really want to know, but I wanted to tell her, to shock her, only there was too much heat in my cheeks. Eleven. I'd promised to take my toddling daughter shopping, but I was crumpled on the kitchen floor. Why are you crying, Mama? I miss Uncle Larry, sweet pea. I miss him so very, very much. I don't think I can take you shopping today. Look, Mama, she said. He's right here. We can take him shopping with us. And my magical munchkin scooped him up in her fist off the linoleum and placed him carefully in her little purse. Her innocence pulled me off the floor. Later, when we were leaving the parking structure, I turned to sharply and scraped a cement pillar. I screamed louder and longer than warranted until the look on my daughter's face silenced me. I had frightened her that day. Twelve. We must wait in line to approach the scream. There are crowds and cameras. I turn to pass the time with my husband and my 20-something daughter, who now lives in Manhattan. The starry night is over their shoulders, on the wall, directly opposite. An honest conversation is forming. Thirteen. My sister visited that April following his death. We went to Union Station in D.C. and visited the Easter Bunny. My toddling daughter ran up to him and could not tear herself away. 
She had on the black and white polka dot dress with a picture of a bunny, multicolored on her chest, one ear with bent, bent over in guffaw. I saw where joy might still exist in a train station at Easter. The following day, on my way home from work, I returned there and took a picture of myself with the Easter bunny. I had on my Liz Claiborne black dress with the long sleeves and princess seams, an illusion of polka dots. It felt like a cocoon. I gave the picture to my husband. Fourteen. My sister had written a poem. She's in a big house, and there is a storm outside. Lightning flashes, and all the windows shatter at the same time. She hears the glass breaking. When she read it to me, I heard organ music. Fifteen. I had lunch with another friend, one from college in Arizona. We went to my favorite diner, and I ordered mashed potato with lots of gravy. I played with my food. I told him how my twin brother killed himself with a twenty-two caliber pistol, how there was only a small mark on the sofa that looked like oxidized ketchup. We walked out to the car afterwards. Someone had parked a truck behind me in such a way that I had to back up and inch forward many times to be free. Halfway through my maneuvers, I said to my friend, See those guys leaning against the light pole watching me struggle while... They smoked their cigarettes. They got into the truck as I drove away. When I returned home, I went into my basement and stared at the exposed pipes. Sixteen. My sister likes razor blades and sharp knives. She likes how they feel on her skin. I am glad she screamed in the restaurant. Seventeen. I'm close now. I had waited so patiently, 22 years' worth of patience for the other museum-goers to take it in, take their photos, move away. Now it's my turn to stare into that open orifice, to see it stare back, recognize the scream still inside, suck it out of my mouth and into its own. 18. Did you scream when the bullet tore your flesh on its way to its, your heart? Did you even have time? I hope not. I hope not even time to form the idea. But here it is facing you on the fifth floor of MoMA, swirls meeting swirls. I hope I have left my own, trapped behind a plexiglass window, soundless in the loudest way, beyond the glass shattering, this bulletproof scream. Thank you, Leah. That was beautiful. I said I wasn't going to cry. Um... Next up, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Seth Brady-Tucker, who will be introducing Colleen Zubik, um, who is also um, a former student, I don't know, helper of mine in the workshops, as you can tell. I, need, I always need a lot of help. Um, she's an incredibly talented writer, a wonderful person, incredibly smart. Um, and Seth 
uh, as a fellow poet. Um, I look up to Seth. I think um, his book, Mormon Boy, is absolutely amazing, and his writing makes me want to be a better poet. So please give it up for Seth Brady Tucker. So um, when I first took the job here, I, 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 I told Andrea and Mike that this is some silliness that I said. I think I said uh, that I see myself as a facilitator of poetic energy or something like that. And what, what it really is about is finding great poets and then doing everything I can to subvert them in some way so that they don't take my job. Um, <laughs> And so, Colleen is one of those poets. Uh, I've had great poets here. Um, and as, as I was looking at her resume, I started thinking to myself, it is, it is better than mine. And then I started reading her poetry, and I think, she's way better than I am. And so, I thought about just telling a really terrible jo- story about her, but I'm, I, instead... Um, I'm just going to uh, talk a little bit about Kelleen and, and what she's meant to Lighthouse and how Lighthouse is impacted her. Uh, she has an MFA uh, in poetry from Arizona State University. Um, she was awarded artist residencies at the Anderson, um, if I can read my own writing. I really can't read my own writing. <laughs> oh, the Anderson Center in Minnesota and the Kimmel Nelson Harding Center in New England. Uh, her poetry has appeared in Agni, see? Um, Antioch Review, Barrow Street, Many Mountains Moving, uh, Massachusetts Review, Seattle Review, and Puerto del Sol. Many of those places I will never get into. Um, so she's a terrific poet. She's been here for, she's been going to Lighthouse uh, workshops for about 10 years, and she said that, um, that of all the classes and teachers, I was by far the worst. So... <laughs> I'd like to uh, invite her up to the podium to read her wonderful poetry. All right. Okay, I think we can all go home now. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. Those are two lovely, lovely introductions. Um, and it is true that uh, I have been a member of Lighthouse for 10 years, and it's, I've taken every poetry workshop that they've offered, you know, and uh, it's made a huge difference in my life because when I came to Lighthouse, I had just stopped writing. And so back in your loft, back in the loft, back in the day, we've all aged except for Andrea. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I couldn't write a thing. So, and I, um, I really appreciate everything that Lighthouse has done for me as a writer. And, and um, I've just finished a great workshop with Seth. I, I can say that, but I never would. Uh, <laughs> he's absolutely fabulous. And one of the things that he was great at was uh, really developing community for everyone in the group. And it meant a tremendous deal, and so many of the uh, workshop participants are here. They're going to be like, slow down, because they know. <laughs> but uh, again, it's just, it's made a huge difference in being able to write or not write. So I, I feel like um, there might be other people in this audience who know what I'm talking about. So thank you, Lighthouse and Seth. 
Uh, so I'm going to read three uh, relatively short poems tonight, and uh, it might be helpful to know for the first one that I went to high school in Germany. And I did not go to German gymnasium, which probably is where I would have learned something or made friends or anything like that. No, I went to the American International School in Dusseldorf, and the total number of high school students, 9th through 12th, was 80. And of that 80, over 50% were Japanese. I still don't know why they were in Dusseldorf, but they were. And then there was a handful of Iranian students because the Shah had just fled. And there was a handful of Swedes and Norwegians. There were those German students who had been kicked out of their own school system. And this was their last refuge. And then there were a few expat kind of Americans, including me and my family. And then there were the real Americans. There were the patriots. There were the Americans who were coming from the army base. And I moved to Germany when I was 11. And having, by the time I was 16, having had way too much schwein and schinken, um, this, I was just sort of desperate to have a relationship with the America I thought I was missing. And sadly, at 16, that meant sweet tarts, being able to see ordinary people. Someone mentioned that earlier tonight, but in English, not in German. And, um, you know, uh, American music, that kind of thing. And so you'll hear some references to army bases and things like that in this poem. This poem is called Dance Hall. And it was written in Mike's class. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just for fun. Okay, dance hall. Germany in the 1970s was just getting hip to Gap Band, the Isley Brothers, and to the mania for electric slide. Or at least in satellite towns of the U.S. bases where GI bootleg tapes transformed Ratzkellers and Hofbrau Halls. Parliaments were the smokes of choice, although you had to have a connection, if not to Bragg or Carson, then to someone with access to all the choice PX stuff. I went with Tweet then, son of Private Mason, and our afternoons were all parliaments and tab, funkadelic, Bootsy and Rick James practicing for the weekend commissary dances. Just an episode in high school, starting steep, dipping fast, and ending without sleight of hand. Radio has never kept up with the times, and 30 years later when my 8-year-old invents Dance Hall, where every family member picks a song and shows a dance, Tweet is still my partner. When the One Wonder Band switch comes on, Tweet starts me slow, hands counterbalancing hips in deliberate rhythmic time while he mock croons, white girl, white girl, how'd you get so white, girl? And I give in to that big grin, make ready at the last explosive bar of contralto for a quick toe-heel ball change right crossover and pivot, sliding in a blind outstretch backwards into his infallible arms. Thank you. So another Lighthouse poem. They're all Lighthouse poems, thanks to Lighthouse. And this is a persona poem. It's called
called My Daughter Speaks. Before your first inkling, before you could conceive of more than you, I had you under my spell. Remember, not even a me, just a determinate, a biological doctrine that had you nauseated even at pears while craving more and more buttered pasta, feijoada, Florentines. I pushed you down the stairs of exhaustion. You were so funny, collapsed over work, waffle-marked and swollen, waking fully clothed. But didn't you think you were beautiful? Like a soaped Spanish saddle, I made you beautiful. I made you full. Discovery is ruinous but everlasting, I say. Hasn't without me been speakingly real? What phantom imperative I am. I see you hoard me, telling the years of would-be, my date, my secret name, even the gingham skirt that we once wore. I know how you hate holding the eggshell place of me up to the world. I know your mouth gets pasty chatting with friends about children and the few relatives not embarrassed to pry. And I almost forgive you for planning, always secretly, who one day you would raise. But I'm not sorry, not for you. Since what did you think? That you didn't take a life? That after me you could birth any full joy in this world? Thank you. <clears throat> So in addition to disco, because it's, it's true, um, uh, in addition to dis- disco, I have a weakness for rhubarb pie. Not rhubarb strawberry pie. That is a joke. It's this <laughs> syrupy, sweet mess. If you want really, 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 really good rhubarb pie, there's one place in the United States to get it, and it's in Ohio unfortunately. Um, But uh, (laughs) I have actually taken road trips because it is a mania. So this poem is called Pie at Henry's Sohio. West of Columbus, east of London Street, as close as our first halter top summer when we came clean about childhood lies at Henry's over blue ribbon pies, forking our way to a semblance of center when tang of first bite melts back into sweetness, tartness the node of early spring, of first grace coaxed out of bitter, the fibrous made smooth and velvet with bright heat and sugar. If conjuring is five parts desire, then just for the weekend of your visit, before the waking of other company, we could hum and work cold burrs of butter into a coat of short biscuit, then fold in cubed and sweetened stalks of ruby. Like two of the fates, we'd be mixing, measuring, cutting, but still in pajamas, almost making our way back to helpings of roughly the same size for about 65 minutes at 350 degrees, together in our damply sweet kitchen. May you still say all of who you are and then live to eat your words. Thank you.
Thank you, Colleen. That was lovely. Um, I remember when Colleen first took her, my workshop, I thought she mentioned she had an MFA in her introductions, and I thought, oh, crap. I'm in big trouble. Um, but she was very kind and patient, so I, I, I always appreciate that. Um, it was a long time ago back then. Um, it was, yeah, at least 10 years ago. I had a full head of hair back then when she first took her workshop. Um, while I'm thinking of it, <laughs> what? Yes, it's, it's the random. I don't know why they let me get up here and talk. I, it just doesn't make any sense to me, but they keep saying, you can MC tonight. Um, uh, Colleen is the tireless promoter and um, director of Poetry Out Loud. And so Poetry Out Loud is a national competition where um, uh, high school students get to recite published poems. It's absolutely amazing. These kids, kids, they're, you know, young adults, are incredibly talented. So I, I assume it's free. You can get in the door. Yeah, it's... it's Stuff. Yeah, excellent. So go check it out if you have nothing to do on Tuesday or if you want to be inspired by young people reciting poems from memory. It's really awesome. Okay, I'll stop there. Um, it's, uh, as always, my um, pleasure to introduce the next pair, um, John Cotter and Levi Jansen. I have a warm spot in my heart for Levi. Um, he's the draftee. Um, for a long time, when I first met Levi, he was a mailman. I know the correct term is postal carrier. Right? Yeah. But um, my dad was a mailman for 35 years. Let's talk about me a little bit. Um, so um, Levi is in many ways a father figure for me. So it's really great. Dad. Can I call you Papa? Probably not. No. Uh, he will be introduced by John Cotter, uh, one of our um, highly esteemed, wonderful instructors. Where is he? Is he? Did he leave? Oh, there you are. Okay. I can't see you. Okay. Excellent. Um, Wonderful writer, very funny guy, and um, he's tall, and he's, he's pretty handsome. So give it up for John Cotter. Everyone's nightmare to be introduced is funny, but good news is I don't have to say much. Um, so I taught the Advanced Short Story Workshop this time around, and I had the great pleasure and privilege of meeting Levi Jensen, who's reading tonight from his short story, Inhospitable. Uh, In this story, an old farmhouse is bulldozed into a hastily dug hole in the ground and set on fire. What happened there? Why, Why does the owner demand it to be moved before being burned? It, it is an aria about the complexity of buried emotion, repressed horror, misplaced blame, Born in Iowa, Levi began writing fiction in college, a creative writing class he assumed would be an easy credit. And uh, lo and behold, uh, Levi's been at Lighthouse uh, longer than I have. And in asking around, I couldn't find anybody who had anything but glowing things to say about him. And considering he's a tough critic of other people's work, that's saying something. Um, I'm honored to know him and to read him and to introduce him. And you're in for a treat. Please welcome Levi Jensen. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Thank you very much, John. That was very nice. Um, I uh, didn't realize I was known as an incredibly tough critic, but <laughs> I guess I should work harder at being even tougher. 
Um, well, yeah, I appreciate it. You kind of uh, laid the premise for the story, so I don't really have to do that at this point. But um, I'm going to read a selection from the middle. So, unfortunately, you won't see the house burning or the catalyst for that happening. But I think uh, it's, a nice, it's a nice part. I think that it's, uh, it sums up the story quite well. So, Dan drove to the farmhouse to see if the beer-drinking teens had returned. As he slowed to turn into the driveway, he could see Susie's red Mustang parked by the house. He found her in the upstairs bathroom, pulling old medicine bottles from the closet and putting them into a brown paper sack. The loose tiles below her feet twisted and slid on the subfloor as she strained to reach all the way to the back of the shelf. She wasn't wearing shoes, and her socks were filthy. Her carelessness annoyed him, but he did not comment. I can't believe you left these old bottles. They're so cool. She wiped the dust off a clear bottle embossed with the image of a leaping sailfish. It was labeled sportsman. No matter how much of that stuff Dad put on, he never could cover up the hog smell, said Dan. Susie opened the bottle, applied a bit to her finger, and held it to her nose. The smell carried over to Dan. The scent conjured a mixture of Winston cigarettes and cocktail weenies from Saturday night card games that their parents hosted when he and Susie were children. Do you want it? Cindy would find you irresistible. No, that's all right. You keep it. There's a castor oil bottle. You love this stuff. I don't need any old bottles. Susie pulled the bag back to her chest and pushed by him. Dan followed into her old bedroom. She struggled to pull open the swollen door to her closet as Dan stood just outside the doorway. You cleared it out a long time ago. I just want to make sure. She disappeared into the small space. Susie, I checked. She emerged with her arms crossed. What were you doing in my closet? It's like, don't be a child. I wanted to make sure you got everything. Before you burn the fucker down, thanks for the consideration. It has to be done. Look at this place. I am. It's old. I know, Susie said. All I know is that you'll leave today or tomorrow, go back to remembering the house how you want to, and I'll continue to drive by it, check on it, be greeted by raccoon shit and beer bottles when I walk through the front door. The windows will be broken and used condoms will be flung against the wall, and I don't have the time, money, or patience to deal with it. Dan clenched his lower jaw to keep it from trembling. Susie picked up her bottles and walked across the hallway to their parents' bedroom. Dan stood outside and listened as she went through the closet. Underneath the bumping and shuffling, the town fire whistle blew. The high-pitched whine would carry the few miles from town to the surrounding farms. After all these years, he still felt the urge to rush home for lunch when he heard the noon whistle blow. She came out with the bag of bottles cradled in her left arm and their mother's bowling ball grasped by the finger holes in her right. I'm going to talk to Mom and Dad. Susie's tone was defiant. She walked with heavy steps down the stairway. It was narrow, and she kept bouncing the ball off the wall, making solid thuds, followed by the light cascading of broken plaster. He heard a muffled, fuck, as she struggled to slip on her shoes. He walked through his old bedroom to his window and watched her Mustang spit gravel as it sped off down the driveway. The bedroom looked very much the same as it did when he left for college. He only took the things that a young man needed, his records, clothes, and a few playboys he didn't want his mom to find. His 4-H ribbons were stuck to his bulletin board. His first and only attempt at stained glass leaned against the window. When Dan and Cindy married, his mother anticipated grandchildren and raided his bookshelf and closet. When they never came, she gave all the books and toys to the Salvation Army. Dan always felt bad that he and his wife never wanted kids. 
Standing there, he had the urge to take something. On the wall across from him hung a picture of the Rolling Stones' lips and tongue logo, framed in cheap plastic made to resemble wood. He had won at the county fair by throwing a dart at a balloon that was taped onto the front of the small poster. He was 13 and couldn't name three hits by the Stones, but after hanging on the wall, he became curious and had been a fan ever since. He took the picture down and used a curtain to dust it the best he could. Maybe he'd hang it in his garage. He drove to his parents' apartment. They lived in a senior community that provided basic assistance, shuttle buses and meal plans and an on-site nurse. He was going to take them to the local bar for the Sunday chicken dinner. In the past, the two hours spent eating fried chicken provided his father with some well-deserved leisure time. Now he used the time to get drunk. Dan wasn't sure why his father started this ritual. He seldom drank any other time. But this is how he chose to spend his Sundays, and Dan felt out of line asking an eight-year-old man to defend his behavior. His mother was waiting by the door when he arrived. She was wearing a long green raincoat and rubber boots. Every spring, she dressed considering it could rain at any time. His mother's sense of practicality was admirable. His father was sitting on a kitchen chair, lacing up his boots. He fumbled over and over again, trying to get his arthritic fingers to manipulate the laces through the eyelets and into a knot. Dan knew better than to try to help, no matter how long it took. You know he went out and bought him some of them slip-on boat shoes, but he won't wear them. His mother made the comment loud enough for his father to hear. Well, he doesn't like them, Mom. Dan couldn't stand the thought of his father wearing boat shoes. Weak shoes for lazy pursuits. Dan's, Dan's father said something like that to him when he came from college one time wearing a pair of white leather dress shoes with a modest platform heel. He helped his mother up the steps that led into the bar. They hung their coats on the rack by the door and took their usual seats by the front window. His parents liked to look outside and see who was coming so they could be ready to make conversation. The bartender knew them, and as soon as they arrived, he would bring over three beers and say, Is it chicken today, folks? His mother and father each poured a generous amount of salt into their beers, took small sips, and sat in comfortable silence. I made the final arrangements to burn the house, said Dan. His father was looking over his shoulder at a building across the street. Kleinsmith's shop looks different. What did he do to it? He sold it five years ago. Remember, they make cabinets there now. No one ever told me anything about that. Dan hated when his father forgot things he should have known. Six months ago, his father came along with Dan when he ordered new cabinets for his kitchen. The cabinet maker was even a childhood friend of Dan's, who waved at his father every time he passed him in his truck. John Bell's the cabinet maker, said Dan. Oh, John Bell, said Dan's mother as she tugged at his father's sleeves. He shook his head and pulled his arm away from her fingers. Well, nobody told me about it. The house is being down or excuse me, the house is being burned down on Friday. Do we get everything out of there you wanted? asked Dan. Yes, dear, says his mother replied. Dan thought about all the junk that his mother tried to give him when he moved them to their apartment. He couldn't tell his mother he didn't want her splintered wicker wicker baskets or her rusty garden trimmers, so he kept them in his garage. They hadn't taken up much space, and at the time he thought he'd be taking a trip to the dump soon enough. That had been six years prior. Okay, but remember that everything that's in there now will burn up with the house. Dan regretted the bluntness of his words. His mother looked at him and smiled, intermittently opening and closing the clasp on her purse. His father took a long sip of beer and then swirled the brown bottle in the light from the window, exposing one last splash at the bottom. We got too much junk as it is. 
Dan's father finished his beer. The bartender brought out the next round along with her meal. These were usually the last beers for Dan and his mother, but the bartender knew to keep bringing them out for his father. He admired the way his father drank, focused and thorough, but that day he just wished they could eat their chicken and leave. His father semi-sober and his mother satisfied and distracted. I'll take a chicken dinner, Susie announced from the entryway of the bar. Dan closed his eyes, his heart raced. Oh my gosh, dear, what a surprise. Dan's mom patted Susie's arm as Susie embraced her from behind. You guys enjoying your dinner? Susie put her arm around her dad and kissed him on the top of his head. How are you, Suze? Dan's father beamed from excitement. Not too bad, Dad. How are you? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> he, squeezed his fo- he squeezed her forearm. A couple more beers, Fred. I'll take one, too. Dan affected his tone to give the appearance he was joining in on the congeniality. Dan takes us here for chicken every Sunday, said Dan's mother. I know. I was over at the house reminiscing, and I figured I could see you all over here. Did Dan tell you that he was going to have the house removed? Yeah, we talked about it, Mom. Aren't you going to miss it? Oh, I don't know. doesn't serve much of a purpose in empty since you kids didn't move in. I'm going to miss it dearly. It's such a shame for you and Dad to have to watch him burn it down. Enough, Dan glared at his sister. She put her hand on her mother's shoulder. Dad, you don't have to do this. Why don't I take you and Mom over there and we can just spend some time? Dan barked to the bartender to bring the check. Dan has already made the arrangements. It's for the best. We don't want no kids going up there and getting hurt, their father replied. Nobody's gotten hurt. You built that house. Don't let Dan destroy it. Dan walked over to his sister and grabbed her arm off their mother's shoulder. What are you doing? They've made peace with my decision. Your decision? Dan turns back to Susie and tried to block her from the conversation. Let's get going. Have you finished your beer, Dad? I don't like it when you kids fight, Dan's mother said as he tried to help her get her coat on. It's foolish you let the house be such a problem. You're as stubborn as your father. Dan's father set his finished beer on the table. The sharp clank of the bottle hitting the formica surface got the family's attention. He breathed heavily and strained his posture. His face was red, but it was unclear how much of that was due to anger or the beer he had been drinking. He made contact with Dan and then Susie and then looked into the space between them. His expression had turned to confusion. Do what your mother says. The words had his father's familiar strength, but it was clear that he was unsure why he had said them. Danny followed them out, or excuse me, Susie followed them out to Dan's car and kept quiet until he had helped their parents into the vehicle. You heard mom. She doesn't want you to do it. It doesn't matter what you think she wants. Dan got in his car and slammed the door. He was furious that she tried to undermine him in front of their parents. They didn't need that stress, not during their Sunday, not during their final years or days. Susie hugged herself, appearing concerned, a gesture Dan interpreted as disingenuous. He squeezed the wheel hard with both hands and glanced over his shoulder to check the traffic. He then fixated his anger at Susie and backed out. She shouted, Dan, there's a car. He was done listening to her. His anger was raw and open, and even though he was staring at her, he didn't see that she was pointing. His father squeezed his shoulder and said, Settle down, Daniel. The Super Duty pickup wasn't going that fast, but it was heavy, much heavier than Dan's car. The truck's tires screeched until it collided with the front passenger door. Dan didn't lose consciousness after the impact, but he didn't gain awareness of what happened until his sister pounded on his window, screaming, 
what the fuck were you thinking? Thank you, Levi. That was awesome. I think I found the, um, the title for my memoir. Weak Shoes for Lazy Pursuits. That's a great line. Thank you very much. Um, I, you know, file this under the category of what I should have said in the beginning. Um, there's a theme to the draft every, every time. And uh, tonight's theme was the past isn't dead. Wait, yeah? Past isn't dead? It's not even really past. Yeah, I am. I'm in big trouble. You're right. That's true. So, do you see? Is it all clicking into place now? Yes, they're all related to the past. Um, and uh, just uh, please bear with me for a second. So, just to get you excited about an upcoming event, I wanted to read the first five chapters of Lauren Groff's novel. You guys ready? All right. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm kind of tired, so maybe I'll just read a. Um, a Mark Doty poem? Does that sound good? Yes. All right, let's see. It's supposed to be. I had, I had the page marked and then I took it out. I'm sorry. Um, it's a long chapter. Uh, okay, this is called Golden Retrievals. And then, you, and then I'll let you go. Golden Retrievals. It's a sonnet. It's from the point of view of a dog, just in case you're curious. Fetch. Balls and sticks capture my attention seconds at a time. Catch. I don't think so. Bunny, tumbling leaf, a squirrel who's, oh joy, actually scared. Sniff the wind, then I'm off again. Muck, pond, ditch, residue of any thrillingly dead thing. And you, either you're sunk in the past, half our walk, thinking of what you never can bring back, or else you're off in some fog concerning tomorrow? Is that what you call it? My work to unsnare time's warp and woof, retrieving my haze-headed friend, you. This shining bark, a Zen master's bronzy gong, calls you here entirely. Bow wow, bow wow, bow wow. So, thank you. So... Thank you again for being here. Thank you for supporting Lighthouse, being a part of this crazy community. And thank you to our readers and the instructors who introduced them. Well done. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.